I'm Marie Cardi and I'm going to die. And so are you. And so is everybody you know. In these shorter episodes, La Petit Mort, The Little Death, I'll be speaking to people about the culture of death and dying. The art we make, the words we write, the absurd and beautiful ways we all process the act of letting go. As we know, there's no wrong way to navigate grief. We need to move towards it to move through it. How do you show up as an activist in a time of global crisis when you're struggling with your own personal grief? Nadine Chmali is a writer and social worker who came to Australia as a child fleeing war-torn Beirut. I've known Nadine through her work as a community organiser and activist, and when her father was diagnosed with COVID a few months ago, it was clear via her social media that her family was going through a pretty intense experience. So I'm really grateful to her for making the time to talk about it as well as being so open and vulnerable with me. Nadine has worked extensively in the settlement and justice sectors. She was the host of SBS audio podcast, Erotic Stories, where she was very gentle talking to me about trauma recovery and kink. And she's also the shop dad of Thrill House Tattoo in Mianjin. There's a gentle trigger warning on most of these episodes because we're here talking about death, obviously, but this one does get pretty raw discussing the passing of a parent. So please check in with yourself as you're listening and move gently. I, I want to talk to you about survival, really, which might be the kind of flip side of the coin yeah. uh, and how we survive death, not just on a, on a global scale, but on a personal one. And you've been through a real Venn diagram of all of that in these past few months really I mean you've been living this kind of huge experience publicly yeah, privately yeah. emotionally um yeah. well, I mean I guess I'll start with what what does the what does survival feel like and mean to you what does that word mean oh what a huge question it, it sounds so cliche but it's really about just focusing on right now one foot in front of the other not thinking too far ahead um and literally just getting through, some days it's the next two minutes, some days it's the next month, um, depending on how how necessary survival is. It's such a weird thing to think about survival as necessary, and I mean it is, but that's the feeling I get, like how badly do I need to cling to this idea of survival. Um, so sometimes it's literally like I've just got to make it through the next five minutes. I've just got to make it through the next little bit. And some days it's like, okay, I got all, yeah, I'm chill. Um, so that's kind of what survival is to me. And then there's the broader picture of survival. What what am I representing? Who am I? Who's my family? Who's my people? Am I surviving through my output, what I'm creating, what I'm doing? Am I surviving through creating another human? Is that kind of like my thing? Because I had a kid. Am I the survival of my father's stories and one day my mother's stories and my grandparents' stories? Um, you know, that survival of my people feels really important to me. Um, and there's something in that that I cling to as well, I guess. Well, I mean, speaking about your people, I want to go back, if it's okay with you, to where it first began, again, 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 again. Your family was living in Beirut in, in Lebanon in, in 1975, and you were born amidst this like quite intense conflict. And yeah. there's a story about in 1976, your mother was out to buy milk for your baby brother, and she was shot by a sniper. 
That's right. She survived that, but you didn't know if she was going. It feels like from the very beginning you've been born into the kind of, I guess, survival mode in a way. Yeah. So my mum actually, you know, I have an anxiety disorder and sometimes I have panic attacks and things like this. And I've had that pretty much my whole life without identifying what it was. My mum kind of, you know, in that mum way, blames it on herself. I was so anxious. I was pregnant with you. I was crying every day. There was bombs falling. You know, you were born into chaos. So your brain, you know, is my fault essentially, which is this really funny mum way of, um, I don't know, trying to help, I guess, but um, taking that blame on herself. But it's true. I was born into chaos. I was born into you know, my, my first week of life was a week where the ceasefire stopped because ceasefires would stop and begin throughout the war. And I don't have memories of it, but my earliest feelings would have been noise and chaos and fleeing and going up to the mountains. You know, families would leave Beirut when it got intense and they would flee to the mountains if they were privileged enough, um, which my family certainly was, thankfully. Um those are my earliest memories. You know, those are the formative things of, of those very first memories of my life were chaotic. Can you talk about um, panic attacks, having anxiety attacks before you even understood what they were? And I just want to sit with that for a minute because amongst myriad incredible things that you do, you are an activist, you're a community organiser, you work really tirelessly. I'm a member of many groups where I watch you kind of lead by example and care for others and nurture and raise awareness and, and raise money for people. And I know that's that's exhausting and and it costs it costs you too. I mean you're carrying your, your own bag of rocks as we just spoke about, but how how do you care for yourself in that space as an activist? So I'll go back to your question about survival. How do I survive? And I think a lot of that is by trying to put out as much of myself or to give as much of myself as I can as a coping mechanism. You know, surely if I'm finding meaning in what I'm doing, if I'm helping, if I'm inverted commas doing good, I have meaning in life. And that's all intrinsically linked to survival. It's really funny that my anxiety and my panic calmed a lot when I started taking on that social responsibility, I guess, that we all essentially have. But when I became really acutely aware of oh my God, like I actually can make a little bit of a difference. And then, you know, it sounds it sounds so like kumbaya, we all help, we're all going to change the world, blah, blah, blah. But we, but we actually are like in these tiny little pockets. You know, I've seen it. I've seen it over the last 10, 15 years of trying to give and then seeing how good people are in the world, how much people give. You, you pop up in my life at these really obscure, random times where I think no one's watching me or paying attention to me. And then like flowers show up at my door. And I didn't even know you knew who I was really at that point. And I was just like, if I can also be that for someone, then someone else is going to go and make that noise. <laughs> and that gives us real meaning and, and that links back to survival. And survival and meaning are intrinsically linked. I just figured out in the last two minutes. Oh, I love that I've been a part of that. I've never really thought about it. You know, it, it is instinctual. 
people just do things to help them get by, right? I don't think we sit down and we analyze like, why am I going to be a good person today? What a wanky thing to, to do. We just try. And there's a little bit of selfishness in that, isn't there? Like, I'm going to try to be good to help myself feel better. And I'll own that. Absolutely. I'm doing it for me as well. Um, and I think that helps people when you help them. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm always really interested in the idea of anonymous altruism versus performative altruism. And, and, you know, you talk about selfishness and what does it look like to help someone if you then, you know, go, here I am giving money to a homeless person. Oh, don't yeah. forget to like and subscribe. <laughs> yeah. But I also think a lot of what you do is is within community, which is not always a very public-facing space. Like a lot of the places that I – you do a lot of public-facing activism and work as well, but I also see you in, in women and women-identifying spaces, in community spaces that are not, you know, showcased to the world. And I just want to understand when you are in the spaces of anxiety or grief or your own personal pain – are you able to draw boundaries and protect yourself? Are you able to, do you take space and step back? Are you just consistently on the front line? I think the last few years I've been able to step back a little bit. Um, prior to that, I was consistently on the front line and I was burning out hard. I think this is all part of figuring out who I am and who I want to be. I think in my early years, there was a little bit of that, you know, um, peace sign. Hey, here I am doing this. And it's this really fine line of like, look how good I am. And someone pat me on the head. And at the same time, wanting to role model for other people, because I really believe that role modeling is this vital thing. So I know I get called a wanker a lot, or maybe that's in my head. I don't know. Either way, I'm good with it. Um, because I do like, Hey, look, we've got to do this. Let's do this good thing together. Um, but I think in order to have actual integrity and comfort within yourself, you also need to be willing to do the work behind the scenes or you don't feel comfortable within yourself. So there's that twofold. Am I able to protect myself a little bit? Um, there was actually one night a few years ago where I was on the phone and it was 3am with someone who had been eating a lot of my time and energy and they were going to be okay. You know, it was kind of like one of those abusive boyfriends that it wasn't a boyfriend, it was a friend, but that like, you know, kept draining you and it's the end of the world. And if you're not there for me, blah, blah, blah. And my partner um, actually took the phone off me and just hung up on them. And I was like, what did you just do? Like, what if something happens to them? And he was like, they're actually going to be fine and you're going to be fine. You need a nap. And he put me to bed and like tucked me in. It's like, you're not getting it. Just, just calm down, call them in the morning. And I actually never spoke to them again. They never spoke to me again. It just never came up. And I think we both kind of knew that that relationship was ending, but that was the first time I kind of gave myself permission to go, oh, you don't have to be responsible for other people. Uh, you don't have to do these things everyone's going to be okay. And then kind of realizing I'm not that important. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> when you take on that sense of responsibility, you're also giving yourself a sense of self-importance and look, the world's going to be okay. You're just a drop in the ocean, Nadine. Like that's the reality. 
calm down, sit down. And, you know, this all kind of goes back to childhood stuff as well. I remember a therapist when I was 25, I got really cross with her. I'd had a fight with my mum and my mum was like, I'm going to have a heart attack. It's the end of the world. La, 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 la. And she hung up. And I worked myself up trying to get a hold of her that night, like trying to call her back and mum's going to die. And oh my God. And I killed mum. And, you know, la, la. and I went to the therapist the next day and I told her, and in hindsight, this was really awful at the time, but she laughed. And I was like, did you just laugh at this awful thing that just happened? And she was like, Nadine, did your mum die? And I was like, no. And she was like, how many times have you guys had this and done this? And I was like, I don't know, like 20,000. And she was like, did she ever die? And I was like, no, okay. And at the time I didn't realise how powerful that moment was. You know, it was probably in the last few years, but they're going to be okay. So to answer your question, yes, I am learning to put in some boundaries and be a bit gentler with myself and to not feel so um, important in the world and take myself a little less seriously um, to kind of feel okay with everything. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And there's and there's so much about burnout in the in the activism space. And you know, that that classic thing of you've got to put your own oxygen mask on before you help others. And I do think yeah. it's really essential to get that messaging out. And I think people do see you so actively engaging in those spaces and fighting in those spaces. And I I, I really admire how how open you are about your vulnerability and your pain and your grief as well. So they do recognise that you are a human. You're not just this kind of person standing there with a shield 24-7, you know. Yeah. The last few months my father passed away. I've been really open about the fact that I've been a mess. Sorry, I'm not here. I'm not replying to messages. I've not been at work for two months. You know, I run a business with lots of staff and I'm just not there. I'm really sorry, guys. And most of them have been amazing. You know, people are good. People are as good as I hope to be. And, um, you know, knowing that is really comforting as well. Uh, And hopefully being able to model that for others who are where I was a few years ago, you know. Well, I wanted to, if it if it feels okay and safe for you, is to talk about your baba, your father, who, uh, as you said, he passed a couple of months ago. He caught COVID and then died from complications attached to COVID. Yeah. One thing I, I really love you sharing is the term that people referred to him as the father to all. Bayilkil, the father of all, yeah. And how does it feel to to share to share your father in in that sense? Is it just beautiful? Yeah, it is. And it's so funny because I just hit me right then, as you said it, that jokingly on the internet, Marik, what's my nickname? It's Daddy. My friends call me Daddy Nadine. I'd never thought about it till right then. You're Um, the father of all. That's really funny. He was the father of all. He took on a lot of responsibility for his family and his siblings. His father became ill when he was a young man. Um, so he didn't marry till he was 37, which in my culture at the time in those 70s was kind of unheard of. And then he married a woman who was a widow with two children. Well, she was, you know, she was pregnant when she became a widow and had one baby. And that was really groundbreaking, you know, for Beirut in the 60s and 70s as well. You know, here's this man who's like Casanova, man about town. Everyone loves him. He was incredibly handsome. And he's just chosen to marry this woman with children, which, 
you know, the fact that she'd kept her children at that point, a lot of mothers, young mothers, she was 19, would send their children off to boarding schools or orphanages and start over with a clean slate, which is really confronting to hear as well. But they decided to form a family, which is almost bananas for where I'm from. But here he is, he's just taken on these two kids and he's got all of his siblings who he's kind of raising as well. And my mum's you know, family lived next door to them in an apartment. And across the way was my grandfather and grandmother and all of their kids. And it was just this little community. And he was, he was the dad. He was the breadwinner. He was the carer. He was Bayil Kil. Um, and then when we came to Australia, very similar, you know, like all of my cousins, oh, I had a fight with my parents. I'm going to go to Uncle George's. My house was that to my friends. Um, my father was really over protective. So I wasn't allowed to sleep over at friends' houses, but they were all so welcome to sleep at our house. So our house became, you know, hangout central because dad was dad. And because he was so overprotective and a bit of a banana, um, he would have to drop us to all the parties and pick us up to make sure we were all safe. So here's dad, like, look, pretending he didn't see us drinking and dropping us to parties and picking us up. You know, I'm going to be there at two o'clock and there's this very stern Arab man in the car. Hello, everyone. Good. Yes. And, you know, he'd crack a couple of jokes, but you know, that, that was dad. Uh, and in the morning, if everyone slept over, you'd wake and either mama or baba would be at the door with a tray of like feta cheese grilled sandwiches and fruit. And, f- you know, a um, little bit later in life when we discovered <clears throat> substances they did not know, uh, how <laughs> appreciated those morning visits were. But, um, you know, it, it, it was really lovely. I have never said this to anyone before, but I wish I had had a hangover at your house. Yeah. It, you know, it was a good time. You know, it was really lovely. And we'd lay in bed all day or, you know, on the sofa bed and kind of veg out. And that's not to say that my parents weren't at times in my teens, absolutely awful. Sorry, mum. Um, you know, I had a really tumultuous relationship with them as well, you know, where um, here I am, I'm being raised as a Western kid with Western ideas and Western values. And I want to desperately at this point lose my virginity and boys aren't allowed anywhere near our house um, without dad like watching, like, you know, so no boys ever even kissed me, you know, like, cause dad was there just like peeking from around the corner, very. <laughs> um, Holding the tray of feta sandwiches. <laughs> Yeah. So it was this really funny juxtaposition of like hyper control and hyper vigilance, which now as an adult, like this man packed up his family in the middle of a war, took them across oceans, started over. Of course, he was absolutely batshit, like, you know, in the sweetest possible way. Like, of course he was. But to a, to a kid, 14, 15, 16, I was, you're so crazy and you're so controlling and I'm like a Western kid and I'm going to have boyfriends and I'm going to do what I want. And, you know, it's funny now, but at the time it was very serious and very different. And that, I mean, that is the one thing or many things about growing older is, is, and it's beautiful that you've got that empathy for his, his lived trauma. Of course he was the way he was because of everything he survived and you know and we're, we're, we're speaking so much about survival and you know we did mention that that your dad died of um, I guess complications from COVID but yeah but I, I do want to mention that before he died both of your parents got COVID yep the same time all these horrors were unfolding in Gaza uh, as mm-hmm. we all as we all watched on and I guess I just want to know how you were getting out of bed at that 
time, you were dealing mm. with so much personal, political, global pain. Hmm. Uh, I come from a deeply political family. You know, conversations at the dinner table were constantly about politics and what's happening in the world and what's happening back home and what's happening in Palestine and Gaza and Lebanon. And, you know, that was the most normal conversation in my house growing up. So that part almost didn't feel that weird, you know, like, oh, there's war back there. Cool. We've been living it this whole time. It wasn't new to us. The conflict that's unfolded in Gaza is probably one of the bloodiest and the one that the world has seen the most of, but it certainly isn't necessarily the worst for my family, if that makes sense. For my family, that conflict was about reliving what they'd been through, which I think was was incredibly difficult. For my dad, um, it kind of started, he was watching the news one night uh, saw the reporting on Gaza. At one point, my siblings and I were hiding news sources on my parents' phone. This was before they got unwell, they got sick with COVID. We were hiding them because we didn't want them to see it. What? Why? What are they going to do at, you know, their elderly, elderly age? What, what will they do to help? There's nothing they can do. But dad's like a political reporter, has his own website. You know, he's just a big me. He kind of had this like, I guess it was like a stroke-like event one night and he became quite unwell. We took him to the hospital that night and that's where we think he got the COVID in the ER of a hospital, came home, gave it to mum. It was the night of his 86th birthday. He blew out the candles and he said, take me to hospital. And dad has, I think he's been in hospital once before when he had his gallbladder out. Dad is like super healthy man. Like this man is clean eating by accident just because he's so OCD, Um, you know, still jogging at 86, still running around. My mother's full-time carer. Um, At this point, my mother has cancer as well. So we've been dealing with that for eight years. Um, And for him to turn around and go take me to the hospital, we were just like, what is going on? Okay, this is serious. So he was taken to hospital by my brother and sister-in-law I get a call, dad has COVID. So I drop everything, go straight to the coast where my parents live. I take my son, my partner, everything with me and go there. I actually then stopped being a mum even. I got COVID, my son got COVID, my partner got COVID. I stayed at the hospital with mum and dad. I'm immunocompromised, so COVID normally hits me really, really badly. I don't know what weird overdrive thing happened in my brain. I didn't feel like I had COVID. I just couldn't, you know, and it's really funny. We talked about survival and the things that happen and putting other people first and how we get through. And that was one of the things that I saw me doing, which I'd ironically learned from my parents. You were talking about putting yourself first. You've got to put your oxygen mask on first to survive. In my culture, unfortunately, that isn't the case. Where I grew up, you saved your kids first. That's what you did. You saved those around you. And if you made it out, great. So, and that was my father. He sent us to Australia ahead of him and then came after us. That was the story of my life. And I think that helps us survive because it was just autopilot. I was helping them get better um, or trying to. And I stayed at their bedside for over 30 days. And then my mother was on the ward upstairs. My father then aspirates one night and is taken down to the ICU, which was very difficult to hear because that could have also been preventable. So there's layers of grief and pain and anger at this point really brewing. Um, 
we get a call, you've got to bring your mum downstairs, he's not going to pull through. So I'm like to the nurses, put as many Valium in her as you can. Can we all have one? Head downstairs. Um, And we sat around my father that night, um, my siblings and I, the four of us kids and mum, and we held his hands and we kissed him and we hugged him and we played his favourite song, which is a song by Feirouz called Wahdun, which is about the Lebanese cedars standing on their own um, in a forest, you know. And to us it was really symbolic of him standing on his own. Um And we hugged him and we kissed him and we bid him goodbye. Um, And ironically, you know, I kissed him and I hugged him and everything and I went outside and I was standing at this glass door kind of looking in at him and my sister came over and, you know, we'd, we'd been through having him as a dad together and all our teenage years and the difficulty and this, and I kind of looked at him and I said, Oh God, you were such a fucking asshole sometimes. Like, you know, I was just so angry. Um, And I knew he would have thought that was hilarious. (laughs) Um, And those were my last words that he didn't hear. You know, I was already outside the room. I waited. I'm respectful. But, you know, that was the feeling I had um, because I couldn't convey – I couldn't convey the anger I was feeling. Um, In a way, it's um, the best – death we could have hoped for for dad because he was such an independent and strong man. Um, The thought of him, uh, you know, being an invalid or, um, you know, he used to say, I never want someone to wipe my ass for me. I never want someone, none of my kids, put me in a nursing home, you know, put me away. I don't want anyone having to clean up after me or care for me. Um, So for him to have gone out like that, you know, um, I raised my coffee to him um, because that's how he would have wanted it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that and being so open and vulnerable and making all of us have a little cry. <laughs> Made my glasses all slippy on my nose. So um, I love you. I love you too. I've, I've checked in on you a, a couple of times privately uh, since your father's death and yeah. talked a lot about the healing power of community and ritual. You know, there's a, a couple of times I've checked in and I've, I, I have felt that you were quite safe. I didn't feel you were unsafe. You were kind yeah. of like, I've got my community, I've got ritual, yeah. I've got symbolism. Yeah. Can you talk me through what some of the rituals that have helped soften this time for you or made this time more palatable for you? Yeah. Ironically, when I was a teenager, I hated everything to do with my culture and I moved away from it as much as I could. You know, if you'd said to me, Nadine, one day you were going to organise a 40-day prayer for your father, you know, and I would have been like, I'm not religious. Um, I don't do that. But here I am having done it a few times for my grandmothers and now having seen how powerful that was for my parents' healing when it was their parents, to then be able to do that for myself. Um, So in my culture, regardless whether you're Christian or Muslim, um, the family will come together and will sit together from the day that the person passes away until the burial. And normally we would sit together from morning till evening till 7 or 8 p.m., 
the community will come and visit every day and pay their respects and bring food and tea and coffee. You know, one of the aunties comes around with a tray of coffee every 20 minutes with Lebanese coffee for everyone. And we sit together and we mourn together, we pray together, we cry together. Unfortunately, due to COVID, the last few years, the communities had to adapt that a little bit. So they pick one or two evenings where the community will gather together, uh, which is what we did for dad. So we all went to my brother's house and the community came and paid their respects and we were able to sit together. They would come and pay their respects to my mother. With us, paying respects is honouring the memory of the person that's gone. Um, Paying respects isn't just to comfort the person that you're coming to pay your respects to, but to remember the person that was. And it's really powerful, I think, It's, I guess, what we call in the West holding space. You know, we come together and we hold space for everyone involved in every way that it's happened. Um, So we did that for a few nights and then we had the burial. Um, My father, of course, being the man he was, decided to be cremated, which normally doesn't happen in our culture. So everyone was already in a tizzy about that. Um, But dad decided he wanted to be cremated because his ashes have to go in mum's coffin with her so that they're buried together and they were married for over 50 years and our families go back to their childhood and even to our grandparents they were linked in another story I'll tell you quickly Um, my grandmother uh, Raifa in her village in Lebanon she saw a procession of cars in the 1920s where they weren't any cars, you know, you're in South Lebanon. Um, And she ran up on the hill with her sister and they watched this beautiful bride and all these cars and these old horns, beep, 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 beep. And that was her watching my paternal grandfather and grandmother get married. And, you know, like that's that's the first time we can connect our families, Um, you know, and, and that's just the most amazing thing to me um, because it's small towns. Everyone knows everyone. And, you know, there's this, that's why we do the big car processions. Everyone in every village comes out. And again, that ritual, everyone comes out and and celebrates and feels the joy that that bride and groom are feeling. And the same way everyone comes out and feels the grief that the community is feeling. So we do it all together. After that, we have some some prayer and times, you know, 15 days, 16 days. But for my family, we chose the 40-day ritual. We came together, we had prayer, we had a meal together. And there's a bread called erben. It's like a slightly sweetened, it's an unsweet Sweden bread. I don't know how to describe it, but it's a holy bread that we have that's been blessed um, that each person takes a bite of. And I think like In Western culture, I've heard about like death eaters and things like this. There's these rituals that I've heard of in Irish and Scottish culture, um, you know, where someone comes and eats uh, bread, you know, for the person who's passed away. Um, It's kind of really sounds a lot like that. I'm going to have to look into it. But, you know, it's a blessing and we eat it um, and then we go together somewhere and we have a meal together. And we did that on Sunday for my dad and it was beautiful. It was great to see his siblings and great to see everyone. I thought it would be a lot sadder than it was. And that was comforting that, you know, we cried, but it was also really beautiful to be together and to remember how much he would have loved that. His favourite thing was kids being chaotic and running around and breaking stuff. And, you know, there was like 30 children tearing around this little apartment and throwing stuff everywhere. And he just would have loved it, like the little, um, you know, very strict 
secret chaos goblin that he was. He would have been standing outside the door with a tray of feta sandwiches. <laughs> exactly. You know, he would have had the food. So, yeah, that, that was really lovely and, and that was our ritual. Um, and then in a year's time we'll do the same thing again. We'll come together for prayer and we will sit together and it'll be the one-year anniversary of his passing and that's our final closing the book. Uh, you know, the one-year memorials when we formally close it. The 40 days is when... I gave myself and my mum said to me, you've got till 40 days. We also wear black for that 40 days, his immediate family. We will all wear black for that time. And usually the widow will wear black for a year. I want to talk about your your writing quite specifically. I know as you've evolved over time, your writing has evolved over time. You've, you've, oh, thank talk, you. you've talked about how, but I mean, you've been more open. You've even talked yeah. about feeling more open in your writing, being able to write more personally and feeling more liberated in that sense. I want to know what it was like writing and reading your dad's eulogy. You know, it's really funny. I actually scribbled it in the notes section of my phone the night before his funeral Um, because that is my most honest way to write. I'm just going to tell you how I'm feeling. I'm going to put it out there and then if I need to edit or whatever, if it's a formal thing, sure, I'll go back and edit. But if it's not... That, that's it. That's You're going to get my most honest, exactly what I'm thinking. And that's what I did um, for Dad's eulogy. I just wrote what I thought and what I felt. Um, and that felt really beautiful and powerful for me. That's, and I know that you've, you've shared some of that eulogy online. Yeah. As well. It's really, it's a beautiful piece of writing and really beautiful of you to share. Um, Thank you. I'm incredibly glad that you're such a survivor and such a you you do model you're such an incredible role model and I actually hate that I am in <laughs> Why? a way Why I do hate you? It. No, you know, because it's it's I kind of joke that Nadine Schmerle is this character online, right? You know, it, it's this um it's not even just me. It's it's this FEMO community, you know, at one point we were like, oh, we're going to call this thing this and we're going to try to do it. And people just weren't paying attention till we stuck a name on it and a face on it. So I kind of became this persona of this community. Um, and I think in a lot of aspects, I am that I'm just kind of like this poster girl that is easy to digest and sometimes challenges us, but it's not always just me. It's things that I've learned and then I'm putting it back out. And you know, you see me online, I'm this extroverted, blah, 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 loud talking dickhead. I'm actually just a quiet dickhead in real life. As time's gone on, I've kind of trying to slowly, you know, make it one person. I'm pushing my hands together like I'm shoving things together. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to be more authentic or whatever the hell, you know, more me um, by sharing more of myself and, you um, being more transparent um, about my weaknesses, about how silly I am, about how much I make mistakes. And I don't know if I'm there yet, but I'm, I'm getting there. Well, that's, I mean, we're all, we're all works in progress. And I, and I think that's what makes you such a strong leader is the vulnerability, is the openness about pain and fuck ups and all that. But as you, as you said before, it's, it's, passing all the different patchwork quilt of learning on through you and that and yeah. communicating it and articulating it as best you can. And I think, you know, I just I want to sort of close out by acknowledging how proud your dad was of your activism. He would post about your activism. He knew you were such an incredible leader and so powerful in that space. He knew you were a defender of freedom. And I feel really privileged that in this 
conversation, you understood finally that you are the father of all as well <laughs> as your father. And I'm yeah, I'm really grateful to know you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to have a cry after this. Yeah. Um, trying really hard to hold it together. Um, thank you so much. And and thank you for your kindness and care. And, and it hasn't just been this year. It's been a few years. Um, you've done exactly what any good quiet leader does. You've opened doors. Um, you've been there. You've sent missives of care, um, not just to me, but I hear from others. Um, there's this network of good hearts you know, in the world that are just kind of like buzzing around like little pixies doing good and, and they don't always talk about it and they don't always show it. Um, they're not all loud mouths like I am. Um, and you are as much, if not more, one of these good hearts that I will um, stick myself to forever. So thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you, beauty. You won't get rid of me easily. You don't have to stick to me. I'm like a flip-on koala to you. Just <laughs> never get me off your lapel. <laughs> Being present in the moment someone realises that they have that tangible connection to a parent, that Nadine is daddy, is father, is a real gift. And I think it's important for any of us trying to show up as activists or aspirational allies, because as we know, the listening work of an ally is ongoing, to understand that beneath all the politics, we're human beings and sometimes we're holding a really heavy weight. Having conversations about grief can really stir up some unexpected feelings. So if anything's arisen for you today as a result of something you've heard, please look after yourself. I fully acknowledge it's a privilege to talk about mortality in this way and there are so many specific resources available as part of the show notes, so look them up. Check in on how you're feeling internally, call a friend, take a walk, pat a dog, just trust yourself. It really would mean a lot if you consider supporting the show in whatever way you can. You do you, babe. You can subscribe to Marie Cardi is going to die on Patreon. And signing up means you'll have a monthly newsletter, writing updates, Q&A. There's a whole community on there of people that I just adore. So please join. This wild and weird podcast is made by me, Marie Josephine Hardy, and a team of fully golden hearts. Sammy Peterson, Darren Scares, Camilla McEwen, Eamon Leggett and Lauren Egan. Our beautiful podcast theme music is by my dear friend, Lord Fascinator. And I'd like to give special thanks to James Milsom and Amelia Chapelow. <laughs> <laughs>